And they said they market to dinks, D-I-N-Ks, which at the time, I didn't know what that meant. It means dual income, no kids. But I didn't know it at the time. So I said, dinks, I'm, not, I'm unfamiliar with that expression. What, what is that? And he said, you don't know what that means? Again, making me feel like I should shrink down and walk out under a closed door. But this time I fought back. Welcome to the Food for Thought Lunch Break with Steve Bookbinder podcast. The show that gives you things to think about when you're trying to make more sales without all the seriousness of conventional sales talks. Enjoy and learn as he makes fun of sales training, salespeople, and sales trainers, including himself, all while giving you battle-tested strategies that work. Now, here's your host, Steve Bookbinder. Hey, thanks for joining me on your break. I'm always looking for new ways to get more sales. Turning your break into a coaching break is a great way for me to help you get more sales too. Echo selling is the art and science of getting others to repeat your sales pitch. Well, what if you're selling a complex, sophisticated solution to a complex problem to a sophisticated buyer? Of course, the salesperson must appear credible, and the temptation is to impress the customer with how smart you are, but choose your words carefully if you want to get the right reaction. You can take a complicated subject and talk about it with complex words and expressions, and salespeople are often tempted to use the most sophisticated expressions or the most popular business expressions, but that doesn't communicate anything about your competence or confidence. But when you take a complex topic and then you discuss it in plain speak, well, that says a lot about your confidence and competence and helps the customer see insights through your understanding of the issues. As always, let's begin with today's question. How do I get my customers to see me, the salesperson, as credible enough to solve their challenges? The short answer is translate your message into a language you are sure the customer speaks, plain speak. Let me expand on that. If I spoke English and the customer only spoke Italian, we'd have to find a way to communicate possibly with hand gestures and exaggerated pronouncing of some words, sellers need to translate even if the customer speaks the same language. That's because the customer, relative to the seller, either knows more than the salesperson, knows less than the salesperson, or, my favorite, knows less than they think they know. The danger of guessing wrong about where the customer is is that you'll lose them. If they're smarter than the seller, the seller can't disguise that fact. If the customer knows less than the seller, you can lose them and they'll tune out. If the customer's wrong about how much they know, they'll spend the conversation trying to explain how they're different rather than listen to how well your solution fits. So what do you do? Always defer to plain speak. Let me give you an example of this. 
Years ago, I was in the sales training business, as I am now, and I was working with clients across many industries, and one of those industries in the late 90s was this new industry of the dot-com business, the early digital company businesses that some of which still exist today, some of which uh, did not. iVillage was a client of mine back, back in the day, and they're still around, but there are many companies that don't. And I have to tell you, having worked with those companies, I was excited. I was a Immediately so excited about the whole uh, coming internet and I could see how it was going to change everything that I realized I needed to jump two feet into that business. So I literally left the training business eventually, went two feet into the most sophisticated, the deepest waters, if you will, of the digital marketing universe, which is the ad tech that's the like fintech advertising technology, the deepest, most complicated, most sophisticated part of digital marketing. It is what has made uh, the heart of digital marketing what it is. So I realized as a career, I needed to be there. However, the moment I landed there, the problem was I was listening to everybody speak. The first day, I could still remember the first day, everybody was walking around speaking this language which sounded like, like I was airdropped into China and they're speaking Mandarin and I don't speak Mandarin or I'm in some country where there's just a language I can't speak and it's a language that I don't think I'm ever going to speak because this internet language sounds like a combination of engineer speak, MBA speak, military speak, marketing speak, and a whole bunch of other speaks, all of them combined, all of them reusing words that exist but using them in a new way or inventing words that didn't exist and now you're just walking around trying to uh, translate the whole time. And I remember that one of the first things I struggled with was understanding a thing called behavioral targeting. Now, you know behavioral targeting even if you don't think you know it, because when you look at a laptop, you look at a computer, you look at your uh, phone, every time you see an ad, you need to know that that ad was sent to you. You're seeing that ad because some marketer figured out that you might possibly be interested in that ad based on your past click history. So from a from a 30,000 foot view looking down, all of behavioral targeting is based on everything you've ever done before. We could figure out what you are probably interested in and if you're buying something about where in the buying process you might be. So a 30,000 foot view looking down is past click history. But as you get into the weeds of literally how do you accomplish behavioral targeting, you can't get through that explanation without understanding things like taxonomy and past click history and cookies and unique identifiers and relevance and top, middle, and bottom of the funnel and a whole bunch of other concepts, all of which are very complicated. And when they tried to explain to me how our company did behavioral targeting, I just didn't understand it. So they brought another person in to explain it, and that person gave a great explanation. I also didn't get it. And there were about 48 more people, all of whom were getting increasingly frustrated, trying to explain to me what they all know really well, how their behavioral targeting works. And so finally, in just utter desperation, they had somebody explain to me as if I were a 
a 10-year-old. And let me just say, not today's 10-year-olds, because today's 10-year-olds are like rocket scientists. But I'm talking about the old days when 10-year-olds were just dopey kids like me. And they explained it with, you know, the way you would explain to a grandchild, you know, motioning with their hands, indicating a signal comes here and goes there, like a traffic cop directing traffic is how kind of the uh, signal is getting to somebody who's making that decision. Well, they gave me a watered-down, if you will, dumbed-down explanation of behavioral targeting. But armed with that explanation, I go on a sales meeting and I meet with an ad agency and I'm meeting with a senior level person and I'm going through what we offer and I say, well, we offer the following. We have this and we have that and we have the other thing and we have behavioral targeting. And at that moment, the woman stops me. She goes, what? Did you just say behavioral targeting? Hold on. She closes the door of her office. She lowers her blinds. She dims the lights. She leans forward. She stage whispers. What is behavioral targeting? Now, anybody in my company that heard my explanation would have winced at how not technical it was. It was so watered down, so dumbed down, so plain speak. But when I was done... The ad agency woman looked at me and said, finally, finally, I'm talking to somebody who knows. And I learned the most important lesson at that moment I was ever going to learn about a sophisticated sale. And that is that anybody could take a complicated subject and talk about it using sophisticated language. But as soon as I went into plain speak, I created this entirely different understanding of who I am. Not only did she understand and follow, but she thought of me in a very different way. We want to follow that plain speak. We want to resist the temptation to use complicated speak. Now, I know you think you need to do it because you think that the customer will look down on you if you don't have it right. We need to know where the customer is relative to the salesperson and with regard to understanding the challenges and the solutions involved. The customer will either know more than the salesperson, know less than the salesperson, or know less than they think they know. Well, let me give you an example of knowing more than the salesperson. I sell digital marketing training, and I work with a lot of the major media companies, and usually my point of contact is someone whose title literally is head of digital or is something like head of digital, but they are the head of digital. And no one with regard to digital marketing, no one knows more than heads of digital. Let me tell you why. Because every single day they're immersed in it. And every single day they learn something new. They see the newest challenges. They see the newest offerings. They see the newest problems. And you really need to see it every single day. You need to see campaigns succeed and campaigns fail. And you need to look at a whole lot of data to figure out what, where and what and what you need to move. So literally nobody's in that position other than a head of digital. Nobody knows more than them, nor do I. And I don't attempt to know more than them. If I even tried to match how smart they were with how smart I was, if I tried to let them in on just how sophisticated I was, they would immediately see through me. However, I while not being smarter than any one of these heads of digital, work with somewhere between 50 and 100 heads of digital. Now, they all know more than me, but I know what they know, and I know the common challenges that they face. And as a result, I, instead of talking about how much I know about digital, talk about how much I know about heads of digital. That's the one thing I can talk about knowledgeably. And when I hit upon challenges that heads of digital can relate to, that's when they think, This guy really knows. 
So I can't be as smart as them, but I could be knowledgeable about the world that they're in and I could show and demonstrate my understanding of their challenges. And in that way, I position myself as smart. Now, let me talk about they know less than you. You know, if you're in a conversation and somebody uses words you don't understand and the other person is the customer, so the moment they hear a word they don't understand, one of two reactions, either they're going to fight to try to figure out, what is that word? What does that mean? I didn't know what that mean. But most people feel stupid when they're asking about something that they don't understand, especially when they think maybe I'm supposed to know that. So I think they just tune out. So let me give you a couple of examples of this because I could so easily remember not knowing a lot of the things that I've eventually gone to know. When I first got into this digital company, one of the uh, first days on the job, I was in a meeting. And the meeting was to talk, this was a senior level meeting, and we're all talking about a thing called a UI. If you're into digital marketing, you'll know that UI is actually a fairly familiar expression and a very familiar thing. It's a user interface. So every time you look at the dashboard, it's a user interface. If you look at your toaster and you see a button that you push down to brown the bread, that's the user interface. If you have a a copy machine with one green button that says copy, that's the user interface. So there's always a user interface, but it's called a UI. And I didn't know that a UI was a user interface. And my company, all the people sitting around the table, were all passionate passionate about how much they didn't like our UI. They were saying things like, I hate the UI. We've got to change the UI. I can't wait till we change the UI. Now, meanwhile, I'm trying to figure out, what do they mean? How do they... What are they talking about? I'm trying to pick up the clues. I couldn't do it. Finally, I I stage whisper to the person next to me, what is a UI? Unfortunately, everybody had stopped talking just at that moment. They all heard my stupid question and they all looked at me rather than answer, rather than patiently answer. They looked at me as if answering your question is going to just take all the oxygen out of the room. You don't know what a UI is? Oh, my God. You know, there was just that, that that horrible feeling. I was shamed into, I felt like I was shrunk down from normal size to so small I could walk underneath the closed door. I just felt terrible. And I never wanted any of my students to feel the way I felt at that moment. So I've changed the way I deal with the training so that I understand that when somebody doesn't know something that also carries with it a level of embarrassment. I've also kind of fought back a little bit. So I was in a meeting when somebody said to me, I asked them who they're marketing to, and they said they market to Dinks, D-I-N-Ks, which at the time, I didn't know what that meant. It means dual income, no kids. But I didn't know it at the time. So I said, Dinks, I'm I'm unfamiliar with that expression. What, What is that? And he said, you don't know what that means? Again, making me feel like I should shrink down and walk out under a closed door. But this time I fought back. I said, no. And he said, well, Dinks, dual income, no kids. I went, oh, of course. You know what? I'm dealing with a lot of other marketers who have a similar challenge, but they're going after a category called discs. It's a different consumer segment, discs. And he said, discs, I I don't know what that is. I, I was making it up at the time. He said, I don't know what that is. I said, oh, you don't know what discs are? Oh, dual income, Some kids just made that up, but he wrote it down. I think he's probably using that expression. He's probably showing up at industry panel events going, and when you're marketing to the dinks, don't forget about the discs. He felt very smart that he learned this new expression. Of course, I just made it up. But you're not always in a position to just make things up. And so the lesson is trying not to forget how bad it feels to not know the answer and don't let your customer feel that bad. 
And of course, the other category is they know less than they think they know. I'll give you an example of that. I was meeting with a major company, major marketer, and I was reaching and speaking to the head of that company about our website and SEO and SEM services, which I was selling at that time. And the person stopped me and he said, Steve, we don't need any help with SEO and SEM and websites and search engines. You know why? Because we pay a guy a thousand dollars a day to make us number one on Google. Now, if you know anything about Google and search engine marketing and digital marketing in general, there is no such thing as I pay a guy a thousand dollars a day. In fact, there are companies that are spending a hundred million on Google alone. If there was a guy who you paid $1,000 a day to to be number one on Google, whatever that means, I don't even know what that would mean. That would almost suggest that Google was like a PDF of the phone book, which it's not. It's a dynamic list, which is always changing. But even if there was such a thing as being number one on Google, and of course, the devil in the detail is against which keyword, but forget about that. If there was a guy that you could pay $1,000 a day to, wouldn't the companies like Procter & Gamble, who spend $100 wouldn't they have found him first? Of course. So there is no such thing as being number one on Google, nor is there any such thing as I pay a guy $1,000 a day to be number one on Google. And then finally, even if you worked out the math on the $1,000 a day against a guy who does it gets you number one on Google, would there even be an ROI positive? You'd have to understand the conversion rate and all that. All of that said to me in an instant, this person doesn't understand what I'm talking about. And therefore, I needed to start my conversation. I needed to take a step back. But first, I need to recognize where they are. And the key to that is to start every meeting with a level set question. Let me explain. One of the things about digital marketing, and there's always a thing about every sophisticated business, but just to use the example of digital marketing, is that you're always spending money with an idea of making even more money than you spent. So there has to be some kind of ROI. And in order to determine the actual break-even point, there's an expression called a CPA metric. CPA literally means cost per action or cost per acquisition. CPA metric is an expression meaning how much are you willing to spend in order to generate one customer? Well, the expression CPA metric makes a lot of sense to people who really know the business because they're familiar with the CPA metric of every different offering they're trying to sell. However, everybody else will be confused by that. So that's why that's the reason I start my conversations early on with that question. As soon as we start talking about any kind of digital marketing, I go, what's your CPA metric? And I listen for their reaction. If they go, well, it's $17.11. I know they're sophisticated. They're probably smarter than me. And they knew the answer right away. That means they're really immersed in in the, the details. They're in the weeds of their own digital marketing offering. On the other hand, if they say to me, uh, 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 CPA, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I already know that they know less than me, that they know less than they think they know. And it changes how they view me. And it gives me a chance of doing one of two things. Now, I could, of course, say, you don't know what that means and make them feel bad, but I don't do that. Instead, what I do is I actually make them feel okay about not knowing by saying things like, oh, no, you already know this. You just didn't know it was called a CPA metric. You didn't realize you knew it, but let me just explain. You know, I also at one point didn't know it. And then I looked it up because everybody's talking about it. And you know what? It turns out it's a really simple thing. So, In a sense, I let the person off the hook for not knowing. I don't make them feel bad. I make them feel good that they just learned something new. 
There are certain business buzzwords to avoid whenever possible. And the current business buzzwords that we want to avoid are about productivity and efficiency. Practically every solution that you could possibly buy, almost every B2B solution, no matter what industry it is, and certainly every SaaS solution has as its main benefit that it provides both productivity and efficiency. So yes, on a high level, just like the wheel, you know what the wheel does? The wheel makes you more productive, makes you more efficient. Every app makes you more productive, more efficient. Every technology, every software, everything does that. Well, the problem is it's so overused, it's so big, it's also meaningless. And so what we see is salespeople in a desire to sound like they really know what salespeople talk about, what business people talk about, how familiar they are with the latest expressions. They're always talking about, well, we provide productivity and efficiency, as if the customer was literally accountable for productivity and efficiency. Now, if you're dealing with somebody whose title is productivity manager or efficiency manager or efficiency measurer, somebody whose job is to measure, somehow measure, they've got an app or something that literally measures, like a ruler measures, it measures exactly the efficiency and you have something that improves efficiency, that's great. But you know what? Efficiency as a notion is well understood. Productivity as a notion is well understood. Very hard to measure and extremely hard for a customer to measure it in their own. So yes, we would all prefer to be productive and efficient as opposed to the opposite, not productive, not efficient, but actually using those terms don't increase my understanding. So because everybody uses it, we need to go beyond it. So if you find yourself talking about, well, we provide productivity and efficiency improving tools, you then have to explain it. And I suggest you use plain speak when doing that. The other thing I want you to think about doing is using clearer expressions and metaphors. Let me give you a couple of examples. In today's world, one of the most common ways for companies to describe their product is to compare it to a product you already know. So they'll say things like, our sophisticated offering, which is brand new, is like the Uber of, we're like the Amazon of, we are the Apple of. You'll compare yourself to some other more familiar product, which is a great way if you make a a parallel analogy. There's a sock company that now says that they embed some kind of technology into their socks. They're calling themselves the Apple of socks. Now, as I've told other people that I've, I've passed that along to my classes, they listen to them and they go, the Apple got it. The Apple of got it. The Apple of socks. I disconnect. So maybe we, maybe they need a different kind of a metaphor if you're going to talk about socks. But let me give you another way of looking at it. One of my clients uses this wonderful expression, which is not only a wonderful expression, but an example of how to create a wonderful expression. So the expression is that when you're buying advertising, very often you're forced to buy things you don't want along with things you really do want. And so you could call the things you really do want the cherries. And so for that reason, when you're sold a basket of offerings, when you're sold a bundle of offerings, Customers think of that like a tree, and they want to shake the tree to get the cherries. They don't want to pay for everything. They just want the cherries. So why do I have to pay for everything? I just want the cherries. So this one company says, everybody makes you shake the trees to get the cherries. All we sell you is a basket of cherries. Hmm. All of a sudden, it's a very sophisticated product and offering, but by using a very simple plain speak analogy, I've got a much better understanding of what you sell and how it's different. 
I want you to apply that concept to your pitches, and the more you do, it's those expressions, it's those analogies, it's those metaphors, and it's that plain speak, that's what's going to echo when you're not in the room. Let's summarize what we learned today. One, be prepared to translate. Learn different ways to say your elevator pitch. And I recommend you do that by literally writing down your pitch. Even if you say it and it's memorized and and, and you've been saying it for years, write it down just so you can see the words, just so you can see the transcript. And that gives you the opportunity to play with the words, move things around, change the order, replace sophisticated with metaphors or easier words. So do that first. Second. Be ready with a level-setting question. I suggested, you know, CPA metric. If you're selling a digital marketing, you absolutely want to ask that. What's your CPA? You'll learn that. But in every business, there's always a level-setting question, and you're asking it just to be innocent and asking and learning, but it will teach you so much and ask that in the beginning of every meeting. Three, find a way to make the person comfortable while you're explaining. So if you have to explain something that they don't know, Please understand it's not that they are going to take a test when you're done and they have to pass the test. It's they're going through an emotional, painful moment having to actually admit that they don't know something, potentially look and feel stupid in front of you. They don't want to do that. Make them feel comfortable. Make them aware that you know what it's like to feel like that. So the more you do that, the better off you're going to be. Well, here are four actions you could take this week to build on what we talked about and make it work for you. One. Write down your elevator pitch so you could see it and manipulate the language and the order you wrote it in. B, role play delivering your pitch to all three groups of customers. That are people that know more, know less, and know less than they think they know. Be open to your team's input when you role play. And if you're watching another role play, give them insights that they could use. Next, learn to sound smart by asking smart questions. Don't think that you have to reveal how smart you are by knowing stuff. You're actually appearing smarter by asking the smart questions. So prepare more questions, then you'll get time to ask. And in that way, you never run out of smart questions when you're in a sales meeting. And finally, continue to learn more about Echo Selling by scheduling time for our next lunch break coaching session. Over the next few weeks, we'll alternate between talking about echo selling with interviews with sales and digital marketing and other business leaders and some surprises too. Until next time, remember, I'm Steve Bookbinder, your sales coach. Please connect with me on LinkedIn and check out our free playbooks and training and coaching offerings on dmtraining.net. And contact me ASAP if I can help your team get more sales or help you have a more successful sales career. Thank you for listening to Food for Thought. To get your free sales playbook, visit dmtraining.net forward slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any of Steve's jokes and helpful resources. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.